You're listening to the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3 FM with Amy. On today's show, we had a chat with Ben Eltham about federal politics. Then we spoke with Emma Shortis, PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne about Trump's America. Then we had a chat with Professor Bob Jensen, who joined us in the studio to talk about his book, The End of Patriarchy, Radical Feminism for Men. Bob is a professor of journalism at the University of Texas at Austin and is currently touring Australia to talk about this. Finally, we spoke with Professor Phil Seddon. Phil is a zoologist at the University of Otago in New Zealand. Phil joined us on the phone from New Zealand to talk about the journal issue that he guest edited. It's called Functional Ecology and the editorial he wrote is called The Ecology of De-Extinction. Phil talked about the science of de-extinction and the potential benefits it has for conservation and biodiversity. You're tuned in to 3RRFM. This show is Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins and we have Ben Altham, National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, joining us right now. Thanks, Ben. Good morning, Amy. How are you? I'm good. How are you going? Oh, you know, fighting off the sniffles, but I'm okay. Gosh, it's doing the rounds, is it not? Yeah, yeah. No, it's okay. Mm. It's all good. It's all good. You're, you're I've doing got my well. cup of tea. I'm, I'm okay. Exactly, exactly. So, Ben, we've had uh, Senate estimates happening and there's just a lot coming out of Senate estimates every day. There's a, a couple of new little bite-sized chunks of gold. Um, we saw John Fraser, the Treasury Secretary, uh, was it yesterday come out and talk about, well, Treasury um, and the, the bank levy and this idea that uh, it was leaked, um, you know, before the, the budget was delivered and he was quite, uh, I guess, dismayed by that fact and suggested perhaps the, uh, the press gallery was at fault in the budget lockup and they need to change the tools that journalists use and, and Treasury must now provide iPads to all of the press gallery. Yeah, that was a very interesting testimony there by John Edwards, the Treasury Secretary. So um, the night before the budget, we started to hear rumours about the bank levy and that leaked out in more substantive form on the morning of the budget. Um, and yeah, now we've had the Treasury Secretary blame the media for that leak. Um, I don't see how it can be the media's fault because it appeared to have leaked before the media lockup even began. So the um, night before, in yeah, fact. indeed. Yeah. So if um, it can't, it can't have been anyone in the media lockup. And in any case, I don't see how the media lockup could really have leaked. I mean. Um, you're, it's pretty secure in there at Parliament House. Um, you have to surrender your phone. Um, your all the Wi-Fi is blocked. Uh, you're in the bowels of Parliament House, mm. so there's no sort of signal that you can pick up to send a message out of there. So uh, unless you had some kind of carrier pigeon or <laughs> I, I don't know tunnel or something, <laughs> I don't see how you could leak stuff out of the lockup. Back to the dark ages of messaging. Yeah. Um, or tin cans. You could try that one for see if that worked. I mean, he also suggested you could stick a USB in a, in an iPad and then put it on your computer, which um, maybe he hasn't used an iPad. Yes, yes. I haven't really come across any iPads with USB ports, but yeah, no, it was um, an interesting point. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm and lots of um, journalists were just thinking, nah, this is completely ridiculous and unworkable." <coughs> 
Yeah, but I mean, the, the main point is at least before the lockup anyway. So. And ASIC is investigating yeah. because um, we saw a higher a spike in trading because of that leak in bank shares. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And look, this hasn't been the first time that this kind of thing has happened. We saw um, a couple of people go to jail a few years ago for leaking data out of the ABS, the Bureau of Statistics. Um, so, you know, uh, we know this kind of thing does go on. And leaking around budget time, it's almost tradition, um, but I guess it varies with the severity and seriousness of the leak, doesn't it, Ben? Well, it's the old saying, isn't it? The ship of state is the only vessel that leaks from the top. <laughs> and um, I think that's the case with most budgets. You know, generally there's a lot of strategic leaks. Mm. Um, if Scott Morrison picks up the phone and rings a journalist, that's apparently not a leak. That's a disclosure or a drop or yes, whatever it or is. or backgrounding. Yeah, indeed. Um, so the, something that did happen, which I think is really important, we briefly discussed it last week. Um, after our chat, Ben, we spoke with Professor Adrian Stone from Melbourne Law School about uh, constitutional recognition of our First Peoples, Indigenous Australians, and the Uluru Statement um, has been released, and it was released at the end of last week, um, and that came from 300 delegates who were at this national convention to really decide uh, what Indigenous Australians would like to put forward as their priority um, in terms of reform and potential recognition, um, particularly around the Constitution, but there are other legislation reforms that were floated. Now, what is happening with this statement um, and, and what was really the content of it? Because it's interesting, uh, one thing that is clear is that uh, symbolic recognition was not um, put forward as an, a priority, although, you know, has it really been ruled out, Ben? Um Yes, I think it has been ruled out now, at least in terms of uh, what the Indigenous community themselves want. I think this is a very, very significant uh, development, actually. Um, so the fact that Australia's Indigenous leaders got together um, at Uluru, obviously a, a very, very symbolic place, and they've released a statement rejecting recognition in the Constitution um, and, and asking for a treaty, basically, I, I think a very, very significant Move, And I think something that will be historic in Australian history and politics for many, many years to come. Uh, this is a statement by uh, Australia's Indigenous leaders that uh, they're not interested in simply, uh, you know, a couple of words in the Constitution or a preamble or something like that. They want meaningful concrete legal recognition and a treaty um, and they're also talking about representation in parliament so perhaps sort of New Zealand style um, indigenous seats that are that are uh, specifically reserved for, for indigenous members but they're not necessarily looking at a quota for indigenous MPs are they they're looking at having a voice that's enshrined in the constitution that offers advice specifically on Indigenous issues, such as, I mean, people have made comparisons to previous Indigenous bodies that did provide advice on Indigenous policy, um, but this is something a little bit different and it's it, not like Barnaby Joyce has been making out, it's not a third parliament or another branch of... Um, or another chamber. This is about Indigenous people being able to have a say about Indigenous policy that is put forward in Parliament, isn't it? Yeah, look, I'll, I'll just read you some of the statement, which is very powerful, by the way. I urge you to get online and actually look at it. 
It said, We seek constitutional reforms to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country. When we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish. They will walk in two worlds and their culture will be a gift to their country. We call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. So, I mean, I think that that's pretty pretty strong language and um, it, it definitely shows where they're heading. Uh, you know, I think this will be tremendously controversial. I don't think white Australia is anywhere near ready for this kind of conversation. Uh, but I think it shows that Indigenous Australia has moved on, really, from what white people think. Well, it, it has surprised um, some Australians and particularly, I think, um, the coalition parliamentarians who were expecting something that was um, a little bit softer uh, or, as they say, symbolic. And really, this is meaningful um, recognition in a different way. It's actually about um, giving Indigenous people a voice rather than just a place in history. I mean, do you think that this is something that's more meaningful and that people could get around at a referendum? Because that is really going to be the, the crucial issue. Um, I have all sorts of fears about how this would uh, fare in a referendum campaign. I think it will be divisive. I still think we need to do it and we need to have it and we need to vote yes to it. Uh, I think if you look at the New Zealand experience, the, the key difference in Australian and New Zealand history is the presence of the Treaty of Waikati in New Zealand. That has made a massive difference in legal terms, in constitutional terms, and in the policy history of New Zealand, in the recognition of the First Nations in New Zealand. The fact that we never had a treaty, that the imperial powers of Great Britain never bothered to sign a treaty with the nations of Australia that they invaded and occupied, I think, has been an indelible stain on Australian history. Um, it's well past time that we address that. And I think whether or not white people feel comfortable about that or feel that that's a, a valid expression of Indigenous views, that is the consensus that has now emerged from the Indigenous community. So if you are listening to what the Indigenous leaders of Australia think, what they are arguing for, then you need to take account of this Uluru Statement. You certainly do. And uh, I mean, it was absolutely well overdue that we even said sorry, um, let alone recognise uh, Indigenous Australians and their very important and crucial place in Australian history. Um, Ben, let's look at some of the issues that Labor and the Coalition have been debating um, in the last week. I mean, it's pretty much almost a bit of a broken record. Um, the government's still been pushing um, the National Disability Insurance Scheme uh, issue. They're like angling for this Medicare levy to go through um, and they're really trying to, I guess, wedge Labor on that issue. I mean, is this kind of all just a bit of hot air or is there any real point to all of this repetition that's been happening? Um, I think it's main, it's mainly hot air, but I think there are some interesting policy issues at play here. So the coalition has done something pretty clever with the budget politically, which is to steal Labor's policies. And then it's essentially dared Labor to oppose them. 
Now, it's not everything that Labor wants, for example, in education, um, and it's not everything that Labor would like, for example, with the Medicare levy to help pay for the National Disability Insurance Scheme. But it's much of what Labor has argued for, particularly in Julia Gillard's term. For example, Gillard actually did raise the NDIS. uh, She did raise the Medicare levy to help fund the NDIS. So um, the the Coalition is right to point out that in, in many cases, this is basically Labor policy. Labor then has got a make a decision really about what aspects of this it opposes or whether to simply claim it as a victory and then argue for more. And that's what Anthony Albanese said last week. Um, And that started, you know, got people a little bit interested about whether there was sort of some kind of differences between Albanese and Bill Shorten. Um, But it's a complex tactical issue for Labor to what degree that they want to support or oppose uh, these changes or these policy reforms. So, for example, in schools policy, it is a fact that it is less money that the coalition is promising to schools than what Labor would have promised. Mm. It's also a fact that it's more money than zero. So, you know, in a sense, if Labor's going to block the Gonski package that the coalition's putting forward, they are essentially arguing against more funding for schools, and that's quite a difficult position for Labor to take. Well, it certainly isn't. I mean, if we're going to be um, relative about it, it is better than what the coalition had initially floated over the past few years, which oh, it's was... Much dismal yeah, yeah yeah and uh and so i mean and they are coming out really pushing this idea of education and and it's amazing really to see a coalition government um spouting things that previously labor really have been the only ones talking about do you think at least that's an improvement it certainly is an improvement for our political process and I, and I think for someone like myself who thinks that needs-based funding for schools is a good idea, then I applaud the coalition for finally finally coming to grips <laughs> with this uh, complex issue. So, I mean, that's, that's a win in that sense. It's only a win, though, really, if we bed down the policy and enshrine it and the money flows. Um, now, that's the next challenge for Labor is how they actually frame their response to this, whether they seek to uh, vote for it and then, you know, go further, you know, promise more if they were to be elected or whether they seek to amend the coalition policy. What the Greens do as well, I think, will be interesting. Obviously, Labor and the Greens can combine to basically block this. So it will be very interesting to see how this develops and I think it will dominate much of the policy discussion for the rest of the year. Indeed. Um, and I'm talking with Ben Eltham, a National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda. Now, Ben, um, there's another development that's happened. Uh, we've, you know, paid some attention to this issue over the past few weeks, which is the Adani uh, come. Carmichael Coal Mine, uh, which will be, if it is approved by uh, by the Adani Board, will be going ahead in Queensland. That is very much under a cloud now because of uh, what we've seen with the Queensland government's announcement on royalties and their decision there. Could you, I guess, give us an update as to what's happening with this issue? Do you think this latest development really means that uh, it, it's really done and dusted? It's not going to happen. It's seeming increasingly unlikely that the Carmichael mine will go ahead Uh, and that's simply because it's not economic. It doesn't seem to be profitable um, on present prices for coal. So Adani had tried to strike a very hard bargain with the Queensland government essentially to get a bunch of money for free and if they could do that then that might have obviously you know improved the economic (laughs) equation of the mine. Um, So for example they're still going after a billion dollars from the national 
from the Northern Australia Infrastructure Slush Fund. Mm. Um, and they also asked for a royalty holiday from the Queensland government. So they basically asked not to have to pay their mining royalties. Wouldn't that be nice? It would. If we could it? just ask the government not to have to pay our taxes this year. Um, the Queensland government has rejected that. It was actually an election promise going into the 2015 election that they wouldn't fund Adani, that they, that Adani would be assessed simply on the merits uh, by the book, so to speak. Mm. Um, and they've held firm to that political commitment, despite much wheeling and dealing and factional warfare um, and a real split, I think, in the Queensland cabinet between the right and the left. Um, so, I mean, certainly cert- many inner city Brisbane Labor members are very, very worried about the Carmichael mine. It's deeply unpopular in inner Brisbane. Of course, it's popular up in North Queensland where the mine will be built and where the jobs will be. Um, But for people like Kate Jones in the leafy suburbs of Ashgrove, uh, Mark Bailey, these are two cabinet ministers who have inner city seats. They're not too happy about the Carmichael mine at all. So um, a real split in the Queensland cabinet. And what they've come down and said is basically, we're not going to give you any money. We're not going to handle the Northern Australia infrastructure loan. So that will have to be a direct loan from the federal government to Adani. It won't go through the Queensland government. And we're not going to give you any mining mining royalty holiday. And Ben, I mean, that could be a relief to a lot of campaigners who are pushing hard for this to not go ahead. I mean, most people in business, including BlackRock, um, which is a, a top investments firm, has said coal is done. We um, aren't even looking to invest in anything related to coal anymore. We're f- heavily focused on renewables. I mean, with most business people now saying we won't be considering new investments in these older, um, dirty, dirtier uh, energies. I mean, what? where are we at? Because clearly they're far more ahead of the policy debate than uh, the coalition are. Well, where we're at is basically at the inflection point. I think it's already passed. It's now the case that wind and solar is cheaper than coal, simply cheaper on any level without subsidy or with subsidy. And so most of the new electricity generation that will be built in this country or indeed globally will be solar and wind. Um, and so, yeah, it is, it's strange to see these stranded assets still be argued for. I, I don't understand why Adani thinks that they can build this mine and make money. It probably only makes sense in the... In, in the example of a vertically integrated oligopoly like Adani is with India where they have tremendous ability to sort of work the system over there. But even if you look at the situation in India, the Indian government is actually tremendously committed to renewables. Um, Their energy minister, uh, Minister Gopal, um, has been a champion for solar over there. And it now seems like solar in India is cheaper than coal in India. So I I think it's over. I think the race has been won. And I don't think we'll see any new coal mines built in Australia. And it will be interesting to watch out for the Finkel report, which comes out very soon, which is really going to be key in terms of the energy policy debate moving forward. Possibly, possibly not. I mean, we've seen a lot of reports come and go in energy policy over the years, so I'm a little bit sceptical, Amy. Um, (laughs) Fancy that. What Um, a shock. (laughs) You know, um, despite the fact that Alan Finkel has done some good work, no doubt about that, um, he has been more open than most, I think, in you know being direct about what he actually thinks. Obviously, some of that will be tempered <coughs> by the political realities of the situation. Yeah, look, I expect him to release a very good report. Whether the government acts on it, though, I think is very much open to question. Mm. And whether Josh Frydenberg, the energy minister, who I think would like to go in a more progressive, renewable kind of direction, whether he's allowed to by Malcolm Turnbull and by the factional bosses of the right of the Liberal Party, I think that's 
the real question. Indeed. And uh, if we look further afield to places like Texas, for example, um, the Financial Times reported that uh, in Texas there is more wind power there than in Australia and Canada combined, um, which is quite surprising given that's a a Republican uh, state. And also um, just recently we saw in Britain uh, that their renewable energy powered the, the country, and it is summer over there, so we've got to say that's probably why, powered the country more than all of their nuclear stations combined as well. So that's pretty impressive stuff happening overseas. Surely we need to kind of compete in that environment. Well, I think we are now starting to compete. So if you look at what's happening in Victoria, there's been a bunch of new wind farms announced um, or indeed begun construction here. And that's partly due to the state government's Victorian renewable energy target, which seems to be quite successful. Um, And I think that Australian investment in renewable energy after a long fallow patch has started to pick up again. So I think we are now starting to invest in renewables. Queensland, ironically, is also doing quite a lot of solar um, despite the, the, all the stuff going on at Carmichael, they're also actually investing in uh, grid solar up there. So, you know, I, I just think that those people who uh, still hold to the sort of outdated view that coal is the cheapest form of electricity, the world has just passed them by. And, you know, the technology's now got so cheap and so practical um, and so global that um, wind and solar are winning the race. Well, have won. Have won the race. Hooray. Yeah, I think it's it's one of the more optimistic aspects of our of our current political environment, which can often seem very depressing. It is, and um, it's also good because uh, we'll be talking about U.S. politics in a, f- a few minutes, and uh, we'll be waiting and watching President Trump to see if he stays in the Paris Climate Agreement or not. So it's all happening at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone expects him to stay in Paris. Um, I think that will be uh, very unlikely for him to uh, to keep inside that agreement, given everything we know about Donald Trump. Um, but then again, who knows what's going to happen mm. with the Trump administration? It's so chaotic. It is. And hence, um, we will see what happens and, uh, and watch this space. Ben, thanks so much for joining us and coming in today. Thanks, Amy. Always a pleasure. Totally. That was Ben Eltham, National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, who joins us regularly to chat about federal politics. Uh, Stick around because we will be chatting about US politics. Um, Very pleased now to be able to be chatting with Emma Shortus, who is a PhD candidate at the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne. She also lectures in American history and she's very kindly um, joining us on the line to chat about about uh, US politics and the latest developments. So thanks so much, Emma, for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. Um, There's a lot happening in Trump land. uh, And if people have been following it on Twitter, um, there's been many, many videos of handshakes and um, various diplomatic movements and body language. Um, Donald Trump has been overseas uh, and he he took a bit of a trip to Saudi Arabia um, and then he was at the G7 uh, meeting in Italy. And I just want to chat a bit about what's been happening there um, in terms of the diplomatic uh, issues that have arisen and the interesting, I guess, points um, that have come out of the G7 meeting in particular. Um, First of all, with 
with those handshakes, uh, we've seen um, Emmanuel Macron, the new French president, uh, choosing to greet uh, Angela Merkel first in a very interesting swerve. Um, and we've seen a lot of posturing from Donald Trump in terms of his um, expectation that he's the centre of, uh, of that G7 meeting. I mean, what has his um, general approach to this, these diplomatic um, meetings been in terms of uh, the US, um, I guess, approach? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess the first thing I'd say is that Donald Trump is definitely not a diplomat. He has not behaved diplomatically um, for most of this trip. So the handshakes, of course, got a, a lot of attention. And that, that fits in really well with, with Donald Trump's kind of presentation of himself as a kind of virile, strong man who's going to win and who's going to get things done. But we have seen lots of efforts, especially from, from Europeans, like you said, Emmanuel Macron, to, to kind of take him down a notch like that by, by greeting Angela Merkel first and, and we've heard Angela Merkel come out um, just recently and say that the US can't really be relied upon anymore and that, that Europe needs to stand up so diplomatically it, it's been a, a kind of mixed bag I suppose but I think sometimes that, that kind of focus on handshakes and, and Donald Trump you know pushing um, Prime Ministers out of his way which is quite extraordinary and, and like nothing we've seen for quite a while but sometimes I think that can, can almost obscure the, the actual policy substance that's that's going on underneath which which is also quite significant so so as you mentioned at the g7 there was talk about um the climate change accords which trump is, has said he's still thinking about but he's given every indication that he'll he'll pull out of those and then and also some you know some pretty serious arms deals with with saudi arabia in the in the order of hundreds of billions of dollars so so it's been a mixed bag of a trip and it, yes not not a diplomat is how i would sum it up i guess and hardly a surprise based on past uh, behaviour, as you mentioned there. Um, but interestingly, in the G7 statement, which was about six pages long, um, they they put out a couple of statements where the US was um, the, the odd one out. And it's usually quite rare that they're the odd one out um, and break away from the pack in these kind of things, isn't it? It is, especially at something like the G7 where the, the US traditionally takes a, a kind of leading role. I mean, it, it's not unusual for, for the US to kind of go out on its own. Um, it wasn't too long ago that, that President George W. Bush was, was doing similar things, although, as you said, not with the G7. So I guess that's kind of not surprising, um, especially given that, that European leaders have kind of reacted quite strongly to some of Trump's policies, particularly around climate change. And they're, they're also quite divided on, on issues such as um, terrorism and Syria with, with some of the other G7 leaders wanting to take a more nuanced approach, I think, and, and resenting Trump's interventions, um, political interventions into their own domestic politics. So, so Trump, for example, saying he favoured the other candidate in the French elections and then turning around and saying, oh, no, actually, Macron, you are my man. Um, and Europeans haven't reacted well to that. And I, I think that, that contrasts quite starkly as well with Trump's treatment of the Saudis and his very sort of respectful engagement with the Saudi Arabians compared to the way he's dealing with the Europeans, which I think um, fostered a bit more resentment. Indeed, but I mean, the US has had historically fairly strong ties to Saudi Arabia and it's a really interesting relationship that they do have. Um, you know, some of it is obviously based around oil, but I mean, what? how significant was um, Donald Trump's trip to Saudi Arabia? I, I think it was significant in that what it did was show that 
um, the things that Donald Trump said during the campaign about Saudi Arabia, like the things he said about a lot of other things, just didn't play out in practice once he got into office. So what's, what Trump has done with this trip, I think, is effectively, just as you said, continue a really long-standing relationship that the United States has had with Saudi Arabia. He hasn't really done anything different apart from increasing arms sales, um, which is interesting because during the campaign he suggested that, that he would be a lot stronger on the Saudis. He, he reminded um, people, for example, during his campaign that that most of the 9-11 hijackers were, were Saudis. Osama bin Laden was a, was a Saudi. And with his talk about being harder on, on Muslim immigration and, and what he calls um, radical Islamic terrorism, um, implied that he would do more against the Saudis. And, and what he has done is just the exact opposite of that and, and continue that very close um, defence and economic and security relationship that, that the US has had with Saudi Arabia going back all the way to the Second World War. Absolutely. So not too controversial in terms of um, his approach to some of those relationships like the Saudi Arabia one. But let's look at defence because that also came up at the G7 meeting, particularly through NATO. And he has previously been talking about the idea that NATO, the other members of NATO, haven't been pulling their weight and that America really has been propping up NATO financially. I mean, how much truth is there to this kind of position? Look, I, I mean, I think it is partly true. The US is, is the biggest spender on defence in the world by by a huge margin. Um, and, and there has, has been historically fairly constant pushing by the United States for particularly European allies to up their defence spending. So it was something that, that Richard Nixon did, for example. So, so Trump is continuing that tradition, I suppose. And, I mean, let's talk about... Um the, the parallels between um, the Nixon era and uh, and Donald Trump because we've seen some um, pop cultural references to those parallels on The Simpsons actually. I saw a little clip from a recent episode where the ghost of Richard Nixon uh, comes to President Trump and basically suggests that he is now um, one of the more honest uh, presidents in history and he thanks um, Donald Trump for improving his <laughs> reputation <laughs> like We've got some of these real queries around the Trump uh, campaign during the election and the t- and potential ties to Russia, and there are definite mm-hmm. ties there, but there's cl- a lack of clarity at the moment as to the significance of those ties, the nature of those ties. I mean, where are we at in terms of um, that investigation into the Russia-Trump campaign links? Look, I, I think, as you said, there aren't, there is an evidence... Um, specific evidence of, of those ties and, and how deep they are. And I, I think potentially it could be a very long time before we find out the nature of that relationship, if if we do find out at all. Um, it, it's hard to, to remember that when things are happening so fast and things seem to be exploding so quickly that these investigations, particularly this um, independent investigation, it can take a long time and involve a huge amount of people and, and paperwork. So... If, if we go back to that comparison with Watergate, for example, it actually took two years for that investigation to, to come to a head and for Nixon to resign. And if he hadn't resigned, it, it could have potentially gone on for several more years. So it's it's one of those things that I think could be a slow burn that, that does appear to be um, snowballing, I guess. 
Indeed. And there are, you know, various developments that prop up every few days, such as uh, the link with Jared Kushner, who is one of his key advisors and is also married to Ivanka Trump, uh, that he actually had correspondence or was had a meeting with um, the Russian ambassador to uh, the US and that he suggested to open, um, a, I guess, a channel that's off air basically through a Russian mechanism or technology um, that meant that that the Trump campaign and Russia could communicate. I mean, you know, this is, it's it's kind of very much um, speculative in terms of it's coming from a, a source that's informed from the intelligence community, but it's still very much um, a query. And I mean, is it a concern that there are these very close ties to the president himself actually um, speaking really closely with people like the Russian ambassador before they've even taken office? Absolutely. I mean, we are talking in in its most serious iteration. We're we're talking about actual treason. It's so it's it's a very very serious the, the suggestion that that Kushner would have circumvented intel, U.S. intelligence agencies to set up a back channel um, with Russia is extraordinary. And and again, to go back to Watergate. It, it, this is a step up from Watergate because this actually involves potential collusion with a with a hostile a hostile what is a hostile foreign power, and it's going all the way into the White House, into the Oval Office. So we haven't seen anything like this before, and I think Kushner is in for a pretty um, rocky ride over the next few weeks as he's investigated because this just doesn't seem like it's it's going away, and it is it is completely extraordinary that they would try to circumvent intelligence agencies like that. But, I mean, it does, having said that, it, it fits into their narrative of, of not being able to trust the American government and that the deep state is out to get them. So I guess in that kind of logic, it would make sense to, to go around intelligence agencies directly to the Russians. Mm, and these are all, I mean, allegations and something that a former FBI director, Robert Mueller, is, has been tasked to investigate. Uh, and a lot of people have suggested that he was a really good appointment because he, he's widely respected from all sides of politics for being um, really, uh, I guess, rational, even-handed and having a great deal of integrity. Um, do you think that that is a positive in this, uh, I guess, scenario in the sense that whatever might be found um, could be trusted? I, I do think that. I think that the, the Deputy appoint, uh, Attorney General in appointing Mueller was, was seeking to do exactly that, to find somebody who both sides of politics politics could could accept, who had a really strong represent, um, reputation for bipartisanship and, and for being fair and balanced. And so from that point of view, I absolutely do think it's a good thing for the investigation. But having said that, I mean, he's still appointed by the Deputy Attorney-General who was appointed by Trump and, and the Deputy Attorney-General still has some level of oversight. So while it is a more independent investigation, it's not totally independent and it's still subject to some political influence. So it remains to be seen, I think, how that will go. Indeed. And just finally, um, Senator John McCain has uh, visited Australia and uh, he, he was interviewed last night by Lee Sales on the 7.30. Um, and he was talking about how he believes that Russia is more of a threat um, than ISIS in the term in terms of democracy and their undermining or alleged undermining of uh, election campaigns. What do you think of of what he's saying? Isn't it is it quite significant that a Republican who is currently sitting is actually openly criticising um, Russia and also 
in effect, uh, Donald Trump's, I guess, language and uh, and posturing around Russia? Look, it, it is significant, but but it's also not surprising coming from someone like John McCain. John McCain has has been very wary of Donald Trump, and he, I mean, he's also a kind of old cold warrior. So he's part of that old guard of Republicans who who are really struggling to to understand this new Trump approach to Russia and Russia's role in the world. And some of it, I think, is a kind of yearning for the good old days when we knew who the bad guys were and and things were clear. But I do think there is, is something in what he's saying about Russian attempts to interfere in the American election and also the French and, and other European elections. That is an enormous threat to um, America's, American and Western democracy, um, flawed systems as they are. So I, I think that there is definitely there are definitely huge concerns around security and also around Putin's ambitions and what it is he's trying to do because I don't think that that's clear to anyone just yet exactly what his aims are and and Trump appears to be pretty happy to embrace what he's doing which I, I think is a concern for Americans and and should be a concern for all of us. Indeed, and um, Emma, we're coming up to the point where Donald Trump will um, make a decision on the climate uh, agreement that was made in Paris and the US's involvement in that. Do you think if the, the US withdraws from that agreement that that may have an impact upon other less committed nations, potentially such as Australia, who were actually waiting for the US to take action on this issue? Yes, I absolutely do think that. The, the US is, you know, it's a global superpower and it has a huge influence on, on these agreements. So, you know, part of the reason that the Kyoto Protocol didn't succeed as, as well as it could have was because George Bush um, pulled out of that agreement. And I, I think the same thing will happen again. And, and it will encourage governments who, who aren't committed to, to withdraw or to... Um, be less worried about fulfilling their commitments. But, I mean, there are hopeful signs coming out of Europe that um, there will be a stronger commitment without the US kind of drawing everybody down to a a lower commitment. So I I guess there's kind of two sides to that. And and Trump was never going to fulfil those requirements. Everything he said about climate change leading up to the campaign and in in office suggests that he just doesn't think it's something that needs to be worried about. Indeed, and uh, has certainly been supportive of coal uh, projects as well and has been really pushing that angle. So, um, yeah, yeah, unlikely to see some positive change there. Thank you very much, Emma, for joining us and um, talking about the latest developments. It's been wonderful to have you on the show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was Emma Shortus, who is a PhD candidate at the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne. She lectures in American history and we're just absolutely delighted to have her with us um, and, uh, and very pleased to really take a look at some of the key developments over the last uh, two weeks in US politics. Certainly there's much to keep an eye on and we've, and we will do that. As promised, we have a very special guest in the studio, Professor Bob Jensen, who joins us and he's made the trip from America to do a bit of a tour um, of Australia. And thanks, Bob, for joining us. I'm actually here to to ask for political asylum. Anybody following American (laughs) politics would understand why. Will somebody please give me a home here? (laughs) I think we'd be very open to that. (laughs) I certainly would based on this book because... um, 
Uh, it's direly needed and I think it opens up a discussion and it's quite thought-provoking um, in terms of I'm sure the title even in, in and of itself is thought-provoking um, and has certainly got people interested in our chat. Um, it's called The End of Patriarchy, Radical Feminism for Men and it's out through Spinifex Press, which is a Melbourne publisher. Mm-hmm. So, Bob, um, I want to talk about I guess, a range of parts in your book, but I want to bring it back to, um, first of all, let's just set out some terminology, which you already do in the book, but I just want to do that for our discussion. So sex being biology and that being male or female, you know, XX mm-hmm. chromosome or XY chromosome, and then gender as being a social construct. Right. This goes back to the 1970s when feminists were resisting the assertion that women were by nature submissive, for instance. And they made that distinction between biological sex, which is, of course, part of our reproduction and the biological realities, and the cultural construction of gender, that is masculinity and femininity. So we can distinguish between male-female and masculine-feminine. And, of course, those masculine-feminine norms are a product of history, of power. And in our society, we're talking about the power of patriarchy. So I go back to those early, very foundational ideas, which have been so useful for me in trying to understand who I am as a man in a patriarchal society. Exactly. And let's talk about patriarchy Mm. as well. So we've got a clear idea of what that is. And Mm. there have been a range of um, terms or ways of looking at patriarchy. Um, The Greek meaning, as you point out, is rule of the father, um, which you say can be narrowly understood as the organisation of a human community from family to a larger, broader society that gives a male ruler dominance over other men and overall gives men control over women. Um, you also say that it's been expounded upon over the, the decades and, um, and that Kate Millett was one of those yeah. academics. What, how do you conceive of patriarchy? Well, my shorthand definition would just be institutionalized male dominance. And of course, that can take various forms. Those forms will change between societies. They'll change over time within a society. Uh, clearly, patriarchy in 2017 in the United States is not what it was in 1958 when I was born. Clearly, patriarchy in the United States doesn't look like it looks like in Saudi Arabia. But, you know, if you think about systems of illegitimate authority, let's call them, systems where one group has power over another. Uh, In the United States, we talk routinely about white supremacy, about the economic power of rich over poor and capitalism. Well, these are not static systems. They change with time and they adapt to challenges. And so patriarchy was challenged in in the U.S., the first wave of feminism, which won the right to vote in 1920, the second wave of feminism in the 1960s. So no one would doubt that the society has changed. After all, we just had a presidential election in which a woman was contesting for the most powerful political position in the country. Uh, But patriarchy asserts itself. And a lot of my own work has been around what I call the sexual exploitation industries, pornography, prostitution, stripping, the ways that men routinely buy and sell women's bodies for sexual pleasure. And on that front, We've lost ground, actually. Over the last three decades I've been studying this, uh, it's a far more misogynist, corrosive, and dangerous culture in a lot of ways. So, you know, it's a complex world, and this is one of those things we have to, to deal with 
in that complexity. Yes, and presumably the internet has only accelerated that issue in terms of its widespread availability. Yeah, when I started studying pornography from the feminist anti-pornography perspective, that is not a religious or conservative critique of pornography, but a feminist perspective that said, let's foreground the harm to women that comes in the production of pornography and the use of pornography. Uh, When I started studying that in the late 1980s, before the internet, there was already a clear pattern in the way that with time and technology, the the misogynist and, and also, by the way, racist component of pornography was intensifying. The internet just took it into the stratosphere. Uh, people who study this talk about the three A's, access, accessibility, anonymity, and affordability. So the access to sexually explicit material, much of which degrades women, became easier, more anonymous, and more affordable. And of course, we know what the consequences are. Uh, an explosion of the amount of pornography, the the kind of corrosive nature of that pornography, and also, by the way, a more dramatic effect on the primarily male users. Obviously, men and women both use pornography, but it's primarily a, a, a genre for men. And men themselves are now reporting that this addictive-like use of pornography online is undermining their own abilities to be fully human, to be Mm. in a relationship, all these sorts of things. And we'll pick up on that um, a little bit later in the conversation. Um, I want to bring it back to um, the historical (laughs) origins of patriarchy because, um, as you mention in the book, you say, well, we all think of the caveman era and we go, oh, well, you know, men were out hunting, gathering food and women were out looking after the kids, um, reproducing, which was their sole uh, function and hence, of course, Um, this unequal power relationship began and patriarchy started. But that's actually not the case, is it? Well, me, Hunter, Amy, you, woman. (laughs) Okay, so yeah, there's this assertion over and over again that human societies have always been patriarchal, and it's simply not true. The the patriarchal period of, of human history is only the last few thousand years. Prior to that, in hunter-gatherer societies, there was sex differentiation. Women, of course, bear children, and that means that in that world, uh, women tended to do more of the gathering, men tended to do more of the hunting. And in this world, you know, that's obsessed with guns and male power, we assume the hunter is always in charge. But in fact, the majority of the calories, the food that came in those hunting-gathering societies was gathered by women. The roles were differentiated, but they weren't unequal inherently. So the idea that there is nothing but patriarchy in human history is simply not true. Now, how patriarchy developed, we're talking about prehistory before written records, and it's speculative to some degree, but anthropologists and historians look at the development of this, and the fact that there was a pre-patriarchal human history means almost by definition there could be a post-patriarchal human future. And so when people say, well, you can't do anything about it, it's just the way people are, that's contradicted by history. And to give in to that, I think, is to abandon the future. Indeed. And I want to look at also the the ev- evolution or creation of patriarchy, which anthropologists um, speculated and believed to have been, and it, it is based in evidence when mm. it's not mere speculation, right. but they believe that it started with the advent of the agricultural society. Yeah. And this, um, I guess, 
dominance or, or creation of a supply thing where people are trying to, you know, mm-hmm. get more labour and um, ensure that they can actually keep creating more right. food, which right. means if you have more children, you have more labour. Yeah. Um, and they started creating these kind of marriage alliances. Could you share a little bit more about that evolution? Yeah, that particular perspective comes from a feminist historian named Gerda Lerner, who wrote a very important book called The Creation of Patriarchy. It's one of the approaches to understanding it. But your your point is well taken that uh, human history changed in a very dramatic way with the invention of agriculture. And that's only 10 to 12,000 years ago. And again, in the modern world, we tend to have a very short uh, uh, time frame. But human beings have been around about 200,000 years. And this agricultural era is only 5% of our evolutionary history. And what's so important about that is when people started settling and growing food, intervening into ecosystems to actually control the production of food, that created food surpluses, which created the power that comes with controlling food surpluses. And basically, uh, not to simplify human history too much, but everything has been going downhill ever since. (laughs) The irony is that we think of civilization When people say, well, you know, the rise of civilization, it's in that period after agriculture, but it's in the rise of civilization that we see hierarchy, the assertion that one group of people has a right to control other people. And one of these foundational hierarchies is, of course, patriarchy, male control of, in fact, male claims to own women's bodies, especially their reproductive power and their sexuality. Again, Across the board, people will tell you, well, hierarchy is inevitable. It's part of history. You can't do anything about it. But going back and as you're doing, carefully thinking about where it emerges, we see that, in fact, hierarchy is not inevitable, which means it's not immutable. We can do something about it. And I think the importance of a feminist critique of patriarchy, uh, which, let's face it, is not popular in mainstream culture these days. The importance of it is it takes us back to this foundational era and reminds us that there are other possibilities, not only around the male assertion of supremacy over women, but in other realms as well. I come from the United States where we are still struggling with white supremacy. I know you don't have that problem in Australia. Oh, we still have some issues with uh, that. Okay, yeah. Yeah, even, I've been around long enough to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but and in, in modern economics, the assertion of the natural dominance of the wealthy over the poor. When you look at world affairs, the assertion of a natural dominance of Europe and its offshoots over the rest of the world. And in some sense, the overarching question is about human claims to be supreme over and dominant over the larger living world, which has created the ecological crises that now really threaten our ability to live on the planet. So, The thing that is so important for me about feminism and feminist critiques of patriarchy is they take us back to ask that foundational question, are hierarchies inevitable? The radical feminist answer is no. And not only in terms of gender and sex, but in terms of all these other ways that we divvy up the world and give some people a whole lot more than others. Absolutely. And I'll take it it out a bit more. You say that if we consider the 2.5 million years of the mm. Homo genus, our direct ancestors, if we're looking that far back, patriarchy is less than 0.5% of our yeah. history. Yeah. It's quite mind-boggling to think that there is another way yeah. um, that we can change. But 
I guess the point of your book and what you draw out in each of these issues is that it's really confronting and very painful. Um, And that brings me to your own personal experience and how you came to radical feminism in particular, because as you um, map out in the book, there is liberal uh, feminism and I say liberal with a small L um, mm-hmm. in, a, in the Australian context, yes. as well as postmodern feminism. Yeah. Um, could you share with us how you, this came about, your exploration yeah. of radical feminism personally? Well, like most of my life, the simple answer is dumb luck. Um, I, I was a, a working journalist in newspapers in the United States and became a little restless and went back to graduate school. And I was interested in freedom of expression, the question of free speech. And at the time, in the late 80s, one of the really important debates about free speech was around this question of pornography. And like most people, I thought there was a conservative religious critique of porn and then a secular defense of porn. And I would have put myself in that secular camp. And I really knew nothing about feminism. And so I had to read. And like most men, I was socialized to think feminists were kind of crazy and feminism was some marginal enterprise by these crazy people and nothing I had to worry about. And so I'd been conditioned to make fun of it, literally, mock to mock feminism. The problem was when I started reading, I realized that I had been taught a caricature of feminism. And it was the radical feminist perspective that I was most drawn to, partly for intellectual reasons. I thought it It made a compelling case, but also for personal reasons. It answered my own questions because like a lot of men, I I grew up feeling I was never really man enough. I had been a short, skinny, effeminate kid. So in my case, it was quite dramatic. I was literally terrified my entire childhood uh, by lots of things, including other boys and men. And I thought I just didn't measure up. I thought it was a problem that I had. And then radical feminism says, well, wait, here are these gendered norms that come out of patriarchy that say men must always be in control, which means men must always be aimed at conquest, which means men must be aggressive, which means inevitably violence. And I was never good at any of that. And so radical feminism not only gave me a way to think about the world, especially the way women and girls are injured in this world, which is, of course, crucial and central to the, the enterprise, it gave me a way to think about myself. And all of a sudden, new ways of being in the world opened up. And so uh, I always say that the, the argument from justice for radical feminism is very compelling. If you claim to have moral principles around things like dignity and equality, radical feminism is a way to make those principles real in the world. There's an argument from justice. But for me, there's also an argument from self-interest, not in the narrow sense, but in the larger sense. And that's why I say, in some sense, radical feminism helped me understand I had a choice. I could be a man in all that that means in patriarchy. And I could puff my chest up and posture and seek that kind of control over the world. I could be a man in patriarchy, or I could be a human being. But I couldn't be both because the the gendered norms for men in patriarchy limit your ability to be fully human. Indeed. And that's the point is that you say that radical feminism allows men mm-hmm. and women to yeah. be fully human. Yeah. And, um, and it's really interesting. I think that it brings out so much of um, humanism and the commonalities mm-hmm. that we have. Although you, you say, yes, there are biological differences in yeah. the sense that women can bear children and reproduce and must, you know, often nurse those children to varying extents and men cannot possibly do that. That's, you know, the extent yeah. of what we 
Absolutely no, for sure. And then these other differences are entirely socially constructed and, you know, Mm. damaging to men as much as, or maybe not as much as men. I mean, it's hard to do who's worse off. Let's not like make it a competition. But you say that radical feminism is a gift for men. Yeah, absolutely. So what are the real differences between male and female human beings? Well, as you point out, there are some obvious you know, physiological differences. And when we look at each other, it may be that some of those physiological differences mean we have slightly different emotional tendencies. But the fact is, we don't know much about that. And in patriarchy, we are always assuming that these differences exist, that they are hard and fast, and that they must then cast us in different roles. All right. So, if we reject that, then a whole world opens up of exploration. And as you pointed out, my whole life up until the time I started studying feminism, I was trained to believe that feminism was a threat to me, that if you were a feminist, whatever you were going to do, it wasn't going to work out well for me. And you might actually have a, you know, a sharp knife hidden somewhere where it would really not work out well for me. Well, what I realized was this was a gift. This was a way for me to transcend these rigid, repressive, and reactionary gender norms. And that's how I think about gender norms in patriarchy. They're very rigid. They keep us boxed in. They're repressive because they keep us from the full extent of our humanity. And they're reactionary because they keep this patriarchal machine in place. They're not in anybody's interest in a bigger human sense, although men do, let's face it, get certain short-term material benefits from it. And I think what I'm arguing essentially, as feminists have been arguing for a long time, is those short-term material benefits that you get are not worth surrendering your own humanity. And, you know, it's actually a very emotional uh, issue for me in that sense because uh, I, I struggled a lot, as a, especially as a, as a boy and as a young man, trying to figure out how to fit in. And for those of us who don't want to fit into hierarchy and power and control and domination – you have to find a, a political answer, right? Therapy and personal questions matter, but there has to be an overarching way that you understand this system of power is not natural. It's being imposed. And for me, feminism was the first way to understand how to break out of those systems. Indeed, in a similar way that women um, have a lot of expectations around their behaviour, the Mm -hmm. way they dress, what they do and think, um, and and that's very much limits individual expression of, you know, what you believe is true to yourself. Yeah, so we're talking about the effects on men. The effects on women are quite obvious. Mm. I mean, the the way women are policed, the way women are constrained. And of course, the the ever-present threat to women that comes in a violent patriarchal society. Those things, in a sense, give women a compelling reason to immediately adopt a feminist perspective. And what I'm trying to say is, listen, for guys who've been told that they shouldn't think about this, there are reasons we need to as well. Yeah. And I want to look at this, the development of radical feminism and, you know, your initial exposure to that. Mm-hmm. And then the next wave, which brought in this kind of individual choice-based empowerment um, movement of feminism, which is sometimes looked at as a liberal um, feminism. And whether, I mean, men who subscribe to that feminism or at least somewhat support it, are they being helpful or are they hindering the cause? Well, you know, I'm increasingly a cranky old man and I don't want to be lecturing young people, <laughs> but you young people need to listen. Okay. So you are uh, a lecturer. So yeah. I think you're allowed. Uh, you know, 
the, what's sometimes called the third wave of feminism. So the radical feminism that I root myself in comes out of the 1970s and is typically described as part of the second wave. As you point out, third wave feminism uh, really puts at the center individual choice. And in that way, it's not surprising it's popular because it's consistent with a market-based consumer society where everything is about choice. You're told the benefits of, you know, this capitalist consumer society is you get to choose. All right. Sometimes the choice is between, you know, Coke and Pepsi, but it's a choice and that feels good in certain ways, especially if you're in the more affluent sectors of society. But the real question is, what kind of choices are you being offered? And this is why the pornography question is so important, because it's kind of a fault line. The radical feminist critique of pornography steps back and looks at what is the role of pornography in structuring the world we live in. The third wave feminist perspective tends to, and I don't want to caricature it, but tends to look at this as simply something people can choose. All right, choice is important. I'm, you know, a, a Democrat in the big sense of the word. And I believe that we want to create political systems in which people choose. But we also want to look at the conditions under which people choose. And so that's why I find this third wave feminism inadequate. And it reflects the fact that I have a broader politics. I'm anti-capitalist. I have written critiques of white supremacy. I've been a critic of U.S. imperialism. And is extremely concerned about these ecological crises we referenced earlier. And so my focus, and the older I get, the more this is true, is on systems, not just on how individuals choose within systems, but how systems structure those choices in the first place. And I think pornography is a very important issue. There's an irony in all of this, that the radical feminist critique of pornography pioneered by women like Andrea Dworkin nearly four or five decades ago now uh, has proven to be an accurate account of the direction pornography was heading. There's more of it. It's more cruel and demeaning to women. It's more overtly racist. All the things that these early feminist critics predicted, in fact, turned out to be true. And yet we don't honor them. We don't take seriously their their arguments. And in, in a lot of ways, this book is, I guess you could call it warmed over Andrea Dworkin. Andrea <laughs> Dworkin, uh, an American writer who sadly passed almost a decade ago now, um, she really, in a very early phase of this, saw very clearly what pornography was and it changed my life for the better and a lot of what i write is honoring these women i I often joke that there's not a single original idea in my book which i'm proud of because women who came before me uh who you know have have plowed this ground and all i'm trying to do is is raise a male voice to say this is what we need to be paying attention to Indeed. Well, as you mentioned, there are so many influential feminists yeah. Yeah. that are quoted and referenced in this book. I was actually looking at all the footnotes and wondering whether a man would appear and there's a couple, but there yeah. aren't that many. And I'm very pleased to see that there are books that quote so many women and, yeah. and reference and, their work. And there are other male writers who have done the same thing, which is pay attention to the work of women. Uh, and I don't, shy away from using their work because often it's very helpful. But, you know, all of this work has been done by by women. And as a man, it's very important for me to do that. And that's one of the reasons I was so happy to see Spinifex Press interested in the book because for 26 years now, Spinifex has been publishing those women. It's, it's really kind of an Australian treasure and I think probably not 
as widely appreciated in the country, certainly not worldwide as it should be, but really groundbreaking work, early work that was ahead of its time. And uh, and it's very easy for a patriarchal culture to ignore that. So I, I not only want to you know encourage people to think about buying my book, I'm happy if they do, but to go online and look at the whole Spinifex catalog, there's some stunning work there, and it's still going on, really cutting-edge work even today. Indeed. I'm talking to Professor Bob Jensen, who is uh, a professor at the School of Journalism um, at the University of Texas at Austin, and he's written a book called uh, The End of Patriarchy, Radi- Radical Feminism for Men. Now, um, Bob, you reference uh, their pornography, and I mean, you also talk about uh, a couple of other issues that really highlight um, this dominance and subordination dynamic that exists within patriarchy and how it mm-hmm. can play out. And another one of those is um, in prostitution. Mm-hmm. And uh, you talk about the various ways of looking at prostitution and how there's even debate within feminism itself as to whether, um, you know, people who engage in that work should be called sex workers mm-hmm. or, um, you know, prostitutes or some other form of referencing prostitution. I mean, you, you've referenced their already constrained choices and the fact that women often in these situations aren't making a totally free choice and when are we ever. But in these particular circumstances, you, talk, you reference also evidence that suggests that um, it's often very damaging and dehumanising for women, even if not immediately, over time, that it can build up and really yeah. be something that's very affecting. Yeah. I mean, can you talk about the aspect of these issues that creates... The, the subordination and domination, and therefore the dehumanizing impact upon women and well, men also. It's dehumanizing or alienating, as you say, for men. Yeah, I think the first question we would want to ask is, where does the idea of prostitution come from? Where, where did it all of a sudden occur to people that I could buy or sell you for my sexual pleasure? And is that idea consistent with a just society? So when people say, well, it's choice and this, and okay, fine, but let's just deal with that fundamental question. I, and I will say this without hesitation. I do not want to live in a society in which some people, a particular class of people, in this case women, can be routinely bought and sold for the sexual pleasure of some other people. I do not see how to construct a just and decent society with that existing. Right? So the idea of prostitution is the problem. Right? Sheila Jeffries, an Australian feminist, wrote a, a very good book by that title. Okay, so we're challenging the fundamental notion that that intimacy, sexuality should be in the market. And again, this reflects a larger problem I have with the idea that everything can be bought and sold in the market. So it's a a confluence of an anti-capitalist critique as well as a feminist critique of patriarchy. But then let's look at the lives of women who are prostituted. Uh, And there's both research, you know, systematic uh, scholarly research on this, as well as the testimony of women who have left the industry, which I think is the most important testimony, not women who are currently in the sex industry, but women who have been able to get out and reflect on it. Well, here's, I think, one of the most profound uh, uh, results I've ever seen from a scholarly study. It was based on uh, a systematic interview with women on the street. And uh, I'm doing it for member, but I think it was 67% of the women interviewed met the diagnostic criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. This means that this so-called job, the sex work, routinely, you know, 
devastates people psychologically more than being a soldier or being a police officer, which are high-stress jobs. Uh, If you listen to people's stories, women's stories, what you find is that there are elevated rates of childhood sexual assault, which do affect the way we understand our body and our world, our, our place in the world. You find that there are very few women in prostitution who come from wealthy families and have a trust fund waiting. Right? You find that the women in prostitution have dealt with limited choices. Most of the women in prostitution surveys show if asked if you had the resources, the financial and educational resources to leave prostitution, you would you? The answer is overwhelmingly yes. 80, 90% of the women say yes. All right, so what kind of choices are we talking about? And then what are the real-world experiences of women, especially women on the street, but also women in brothels or women in webcami? Right? And what you find, and this is also true of women in pornography, that there are psychic and physical consequences to this so-called work. And again, I don't want to live in a world where the idea of prostitution is taken as a given. And I certainly don't want to live in a world where people suffer the injuries that are routine in not only prostitution, but all of the sexual exploitation industries, stripping, pornography, prostitution. And again, I, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but these are ways that men routinely buy and sell women's bodies for sexual pleasure. And that is, for me, simply inconsistent with a stable, decent human community. Indeed, and you you do say that in this particular area, you're making um, a moral judgment and it's really difficult for any person to make an an entirely objective judgment on this particular thing. But as you say, your priority is about people living fully and having freedom and egalitarianism as part of that. Right. So if I can interrupt, one of the things people say uh, when I make a case like this or any man does especially is who are you to talk? Well, I want to make it clear, I'm not criticizing women who are in the sexual exploitation industries. I'm, I'm focusing on men and men's mm. choices and the way that patriarchy structures all of these choices. The other thing is people are often afraid of being called moralistic because especially from conservative and very religious perspectives, moralism is a kind of finger waving. You shouldn't do this with your body. When I say there's a moral component to this argument, I don't mean that I'm going to tell you how you should behave sexually. I'm saying that sexuality is part of a moral code and everybody has one, right? And I have a certain perspective on where sexuality I believe fits in the human experience. And I have a moral perspective on that. So do supporters of pornography and prostitution. So this attempt to say, well, you're just being moralistic. I want to say, okay, well, you tell me about the moral principles that inform your politics. We're we're often very afraid of talking about morality because it's been narrowed, especially Mm. by conservative forces. Morality is an inescapable part of human life. There is moral, there are moral principles behind everything we do, personally, politically, and I'm I prefer to make those explicit and talk about them rather than pretend that somehow you can live without a moral principle behind what you're doing. That's just silly. It it is. And that's what I guess what comes out every chapter in this book Mm -hmm. is that you're really confronting head on those scary things, the fear, the things that people are too afraid to face and confront the reality of. And 
interestingly, you talk about, and you've just said there that, you know, sex is different and it's a completely, it, it's very hard to compare that particular experience to anything else in terms of the vulnerability that yeah. it opens up between human beings. And you do ask, well, what is sex for? Yeah. And you say that, you know, there is the aspect of pleasure and there's um, other points, but what do you think sex is for in this framework that we're discussing. Again, this idea that sex can just be another kind of work. I've done a lot of different kinds of work in my life, you know, uh, shoveling sidewalks, unloading trucks, teaching, writing news stories. None of them bear any resemblance to sexuality. And that's my experience. And if people say, well, that's just you. Well, it's not just me. It's, I think, a common understanding that sex has a distinctive place in the human experience. It's clearly part of reproduction and it's clearly a way we experience pleasure but i would argue that if we reduce sex to only reproduction or pleasure pleasure acquisition we're missing the really deeper way that that intimacy and sexuality are part of the human experience now i'm not going to prescribe the way everybody should understand sex because there's an incredible variation in the human species. I also think that what sex means in our lives can change over time. What a 16-year-old kid is learning through a a developing sexuality is very different what a 58-year-old man in a committed relationship is going to understand sex to be for. But I think the vulnerability you mentioned is crucial because one of the distinctive things about sexuality when it works is that we open up to another person. And, uh, you know, I don't want to seem overly sentimental. I'm not a big fan of Hollywood romances. I'm not talking about that shallow and superficial kind of romance. I'm talking about the way that we are really moved. And, and I think sometimes people are nervous about talking about it because it, even in speaking about it, it reveals something about ourselves. Uh, and we're all a little nervous about it. You mentioned fear. And, and when I say that people are afraid of this, I'm not speaking from on a high. I'm afraid of it. I still, after decades of talking about these things, feel very nervous sometimes because no one really has the definitive answer. These aren't, you know, we're not working out algebra problems here. We're trying to understand that which is in some sense mystery. It's beyond understanding. What is the role of sex in human society? Well, think about how much art has been made about sex over the years. Real art, right? It's because we we use our artistic, our creative capacities to try to understand this ineffable, mysterious part of our lives. And that's appropriate. So I, I think it's naive to say, here's what sex is for. But to open up the question, I think, is important. It is, and it is thought-provoking to think of it in those very different terms and functions. Um, and really, I want to look just finally at um, the ideas that you also bring out and you reference uh, at the conclusion that are really poignant about how radical feminism and a critique of patriarchy not only uh, benefits men, but it benefits the planet. Mm-hmm. And it's something that we focus on in this show is the idea of the ecosphere and humans' place within it. And I read an interview um, that you had with, uh, I can't remember his name, but you were talking about environmentalism and how you're not an environmentalist because it still exerts human dominance yeah. over nature. And you're talking about humans having a place within nature yeah. that isn't about domination. Yeah. 
increasingly, a lot of people are are souring on this term environmentalism because number one, it doesn't tend to be radical enough to deal with the real threats to the planet, but it does it does suggest that somehow we are separate from nature. And the obvious point is we are simply a species within nature. And different people use different terms to try and describe this. But it, it seems to me that the foundational problem in our environmental troubles is humans declaring that we are supreme over the world and we can do with it what we want because we own the world. The real assertion in the modern world is that human beings literally own the world and in capitalism of course can own every inch of the world there's nothing that can't be brought into the market that's a profoundly pathological perspective we don't own the world as the old saying goes in the end the world owns us you know ashes to ashes dust to dust is Mm. not just a religious phrase (laughs) it's a recognition that We are part of a larger living world. And just like men have claimed to own women's bodies, we claim to own the earth. And that is a a disturbing claim. And it leads, you know, if I own this pen and I get mad and throw the pen at the wall, nobody's going to say, oh, you violate, you know, you own things. When you own things, you assert rights over them. Mm. And that's why, of course, we now at least should be rejecting the right that men can own women. But we have to, I think, move and recognize that Human beings' claim to own the earth is a very dangerous claim. It's woven, of course, through the entire global economy. And that's why the the radical feminist perspective helps me not only deal with sex-gender politics, but also deal with all of these other questions around race, around economies, around war and peace, and profoundly around ecology. Absolutely. I could not agree more in terms of that power dynamic Mm. that is currently at play and that it absolutely needs to shift. And hopefully we can continue that discussion, pull out those ideas, because that's something I'm certainly focused on. And just finally, you reference and talk about um, a a civil rights uh, activist. Um, Now, correct me if I've got his name wrong. Is it James Baldwin? Yes, correct. Yeah. And and he does have a a great famous quote, and I'm not sure if you remember the quote off the top of your head. um, but you do talk about it and extend his idea about confronting truth and talking about truth. And um, and I'll quote your paraphrase of it to kind of draw it all out. You say, our task for all of us, men and women, in whatever endeavours we have chosen, is to tell as much of the truth as we can bear. And then a little more. And then all the rest of the truth, whether we can bear it or not. And that little part at the end is your addition. So we have to not just tell as much as we can bear, but we have to do it even if it's unbearable. James Baldwin is, like Andrea Dworkin, I think an underappreciated writer from the last half of the 20th century in the U.S. uh, and wrote eloquently, especially about America's inability to come to terms with white supremacy. But that quote was from a 1960s essay where he said, the role of writers is to tell the truth, and then a little more than you can bear. And I think I extended that because at this point in human history, we don't have the time or luxury to turn away from difficult truths. And I think when we look, as, as you clearly have done, looked at the, the state of the larger living world, the health of the ecosystems on which, after all, our own lives depend, the news is pretty grim. And it's easy to want to turn away from that and believe we're going to invent the next great you know, energy device that will save us all. And I think those are failed hopes. And coming to terms with that seems to be kind of depressing. In fact, I'm often accused of being depressing. <laughs> and maybe I am, but... Or a realist. Yeah. But I think that 
what we're talking about is an often an unarticulated sense of grief. And I'm a big believer that grieving together helps us get through these difficult truths, not because we're going to have easy solutions, but because once we get through that and have grieved, we can at least know the landscape on which we are going to make choices about potential solutions. And to me, there's nothing more important than, in a sense, publicly grieving, sharing that sense of anguish. Uh, It's not just that we're sad about the fact there's pollution in the world. We're talking about a much deeper reaction. And I think it's healthy. It's healthy in individual cases. If a loved one is dying, you don't, you know, criticize people for grieving, right? It's a part of coming to terms with the world. And I I think there's nothing more important emotionally to do today than to be able to grieve collectively. And uh, we'll leave it on that beautiful and poignant note, um, Bob. Thank you so much for giving us your time and valuable insights into this issue. It's just been absolutely wonderful. Well, thank you, Amy. This is one of the most uh, in-depth and thoughtful discussions I've had about the book. I had to leave the US and come to Australia to find people who who do these. So (laughs) thank you, Australia, and thank you, Amy, for your your comments. It's my pleasure. And if people would like to see you speak, um, we'll note that uh, actually the readings event in Carlton tonight is sold out, which is wonderful. Um, But you are elsewhere. You're also touring regional Australia and you're back in Melbourne. So if people want to see you, what can they do? Right. The the readings bookshop in Carlton event is sadly sold out. And that was tonight. Right. I'm going to be back on Thursday, June 1st at RMIT uh, to talk with a panel, including some great Australians. Uh, that's at 5.30 uh, on the RMIT campus, but the the room has not yet been assigned because, again, luckily there's been a lot of interest, so they're going to move it to a bigger room. So you can check the SpinFX website where there's a calendar of my events in Australia. And we'll retweet that for everyone. Great. Thanks so much. No worries. Thank you, Bob. That was Professor Bob Jensen, who is from the School of Journalism at the University of Texas at Austin, and he's written an essential book. Uh, It's called The End of Patriarchy, Radical Feminism for Men. It's thought-provoking, it's logical, it's philosophical, and it's very well informed by feminist thought that's been built and I guess, created by women over many, many decades. So um, I highly recommend checking it out. And as mentioned, you're listening to 3RRFM with Amy Mullins. Uh, This show is called Uncommon Sense and uh, we have a very special guest on the line from New Zealand, Professor Phil Seddon, who is from the University of Otago, as mentioned, and he's written an editorial and guest edited an issue of the Functional Ecology Journal and um, he's really talking about some fascinating science uh, in terms of the de-extinction of species and when we talk about species, we're talking about animals but also about plants. So, Thank you, Phil, for joining us. Uh, my pleasure, Amy. It's absolutely wonderful to have you talk about this um, discussion, this topic, because uh, we on this show discuss uh, many species that are um, important to Australians, particularly Victorians here in Melbourne, such as the Leadbeater's possum, um, which is under threat um, and may become extinct uh, in future and was feared to be extinct um, a little while back. And so this really brings it home for us, and I'm sure it also bring this issue is quite um, important to New Zealand and others around the world because there are many species that have been lost um, that are really unique and and valuable and interesting species that made a big contribution to the um, 
the ecosphere and environment that they were part of. I just want to do a bit of a, a, a check or a background on the idea of de-extinction and bringing uh, a species back from extinction. We're really talking about a species that will have completely died out as far as we know um, and then to actually bring it back but it's not going to be the same. Could you share with us um, where the science has come from on this topic and how it's developed? Yeah, certainly, Amy. Um, currently, we think about three different pathways for de-extinction. So the first one's a, a bit of a cheat. It's the idea of backbreeding. So you, you take an animal and you selectively breed it until it starts to look like an ancestral version. So it's probably the least... Uh, de-extinction. You're not really getting back that species at all, but you're getting back something that looks like it. And people are doing things like that with the rocks, the wild wild bull from Europe, or with versions of the plain zebra in South Africa. The second one we're more familiar with, and that's the idea of cloning. So the trick there is uh, you're cloning something that doesn't exist anymore. So while cloning has become more routine, I might say, and you, know, you can even get your dog cloned, and a clone of a dog is a dog, the trick is, if, what if there were no more dogs in the world and you wanted to clone a dog? You have to find some other kind of animal that would be closely related enough that you could use as a surrogate. So something else that you would uh, use the, the cell from, you'd create an embryo and you'd implant that embryo in your surrogate. And that's interspecies cloning? Interspecies cloning, yes. So some technical challenges there uh, has happened. Um, you know, there's already an example of that. Uh, Pyrenean ibex, so a form of goat in uh, Spain, uh, went extinct in uh, 2000 or around about then, and a number of years later, using cells that they'd stored on ice, they were able to use a common goat as a surrogate mother and had a live birth of this Pyrenean ibex, this bucado. Uh, the clone didn't last very long and he lived about seven minutes but for those seven minutes that extinct species in some version was back again. And was it essential to have tissue that was from that animal in the first place? Yeah that's, that's the real that's the real tr trick so you've got to have tissue but you've got to have it preserved in the right kind of way so we talk about them being frozen in the right kind of way cryopreserved if you don't have properly preserved cells then that pure cloning pathway is not open to you. And you have to go down this third pathway, which gets a lot more technical. So for things that went extinct uh, before people were keeping cells on ice, and we, you know, we're thinking about mammoths and, and things like that, what you've got to do is you've got to read the DNA from old specimens. They might be something that's thawed out of a Siberian permafrost, or it might be something that's sitting in a... A museum collection. And the trouble with that, you're reading DNA, it's a very fragile molecule, it's a little broken down. So you can't read all the, all the genetic code. What you end up doing is reading fragments and there'll be other missing bits and you've got to take a guess at what those missing bits were and how important they were. And your best guess is to look at a near relative and say, well, you know, this sequence is similar in, in here and similar in there, so we might anticipate or predict that the missing bit looks a bit like that. So you, you then have to kind of re-engineer what you think is your best guess at the original, the, the extinct species. So you're really creating some kind of hybrid version there. 
Exactly. So really, when we're talking about de-extinction, um, it's pretty much impossible, is it, to bring back a species uh, that has gone extinct and you can't really bring it back in its really true original self. That's the argument at the moment. And there's still some debate about how close you might get with cloning, uh, where, you know, the genetically or the, the kind of nuclear DNA would be the same, but there would be differences in what we call the mitochondrial DNA. There would also be epigenetic differences. That is, just by having a, a bucado sitting inside a common goat, it's a completely different environment, that embryo. And we know from studies that that will turn on or off different gene actions. And then you've got to remember that that first individual that's born won't be raised by its own species. It'll be raised in a different environment, uh, eating different foods, um, learning different behaviours. And we know that, you know, for a lot of species, that's incredibly important about, you know, determining what they are, how they function, and, and how they're going to survive as they go forward. So what we think at the moment, being precautionary, I think it's what you do is you say you can't actually get back exactly what you've lost and what this does is it puts the emphasis on extinction again so extinction really is forever it's really something we want to avoid happening in the first place so we can't see as de-extinction as a kind of a techno fix for that Exactly. And I mean, you point out that there are a couple of things that we really, truly lose. Um, when we lose a species, we're losing their evolutionary pathway and the, the different behaviours and ways that um, they've developed over time. But then also it creates a gap within an ecosystem, which then uh, may be filled by other animals or species. I mean, these kind of um, changes and adaptations that occur really mean that if you're bringing back a, a species, can you ever really refill that gap and have it as, as initially intended? Yeah, that's a really good point because nothing stays still. These, nothing, nothing is static. So as soon as you lose something, you've, you've created a gap which might get filled, bring that thing back, and suddenly there's no place for it left. There's no habitat, no suitable habitat. Things have moved on in some kind of way. And the longer ago that extinction was, the longer that that species has been missing from an area, the much more likely there'll be some kind of change that, that really alters the habitat suitability. Which is why when we think about applying this kind of technology, I think it may be better to think about very recent extinctions. And that's for a couple of reasons. We have more confidence that there's still habitat, but we also know much more about species that have gone recently extinct than we do about things like woolly mammoth. So, you know, we may have an idea, you know, what they should eat, how you raise them, how you look after them, what they, how they interact, um, what their ecology or their biology is like. And there are some um, recent extinctions in New Zealand that have been particularly um, poignant. Could you share with us some of those species that have been lost and that could potentially be candidates for this? Sure. Uh, you know, we have a, a rather sad, long list of species that we've lost at various times and that are sort of still ongoing and we're in danger of losing others. We don't need to go too far back and we find uh, extraordinary birds like the huia, which was a, um, a, an interesting looking bird because the male and the female had very different kind of beak shapes. So, you know, one had a big, long, curved beak, which unfortunately made it very popular for collections. Uh, and that, that died out, um, partly from collecting, but partly because we've got all these invasive uh, predators. We've got um, rats and cats and stoats and ferrets, and unfortunately we've got brush-tailed possums too, which are, uh, they, 
they love New Zealand. They do very well over here. So if you ever want some back, we have to get some. <laughs> Introduced species are certainly not welcome there. <laughs> um, a very recent extinction is um, a bird called the kokako. So there were, was a North Island version and a South Island version, and the North Island version still is still with us. But the South Island version, we're pretty sure, is gone, though there's, people are still out there looking for it. And if you happen to be in, in Westland and you get a good photo of a South Island kokako, it's worth $5,000 to you because there's a sort of a, a reward out if anyone's seen one. But a very recent extinction like that would be a really good candidate. We've got a near relative in the North Island version. We could use that as a basis for recreating the South Island version, which had some differences. And we know that habitat still sits there as long as we can control those predators. And it is a really beautiful bird, just on a, a side note. Um, it's a, a really interesting species to look at and uh, and it has this beautiful blue um, throat, is it? That's, um, that's right, yeah, the wattle. It's, it's one of the wattle birds uh, we have around and it has an extraordinary uh, song, uh, absolutely haunting, yeah. And so, I mean, apart from the obvious, which is that of course, we don't want um, these species to go extinct. And now the discussions that the scientific community is having, but also, I guess, the global community is having about bringing back some of these species. I mean, what do you think is the time timeline for people wanting to do this in the third pathway that you mentioned, which is genome editing? I mean, do you think this is a, a viable um, short to medium term prospect I, I think it is. Not that I, it's, it's not my area of expertise, um, but in, in my understanding of it, it's tapping into technology which is changing so incredibly fast. We could think of de-extinction as a subset of a much bigger field called synthetic biology. That's really tapping into our ability to read and write and manipulate genetic material to make new things that are useful. So people are doing this in all sorts of ways with all sorts of things, thinking about creating foods and fuels and whatever. De-extinction is kind of a little subset of that. And a lot of these things have, have moved from kind of science fiction into science fact only in the last 10 years. And I think within the next 10 years, we're going to see some extraordinary uh, things, capabilities really, the idea of reframing the possible. And what that's going to do is force us into having some debates about where we want to push this technology and what we want the natural world around us to look like. Absolutely. And uh, this this journal uh, volume that you've edited um, has really draws out a lot of these issues as, around selecting species that might be good candidates and the reasons why we might do it in the first place because, of course, just because we can do it doesn't mean we should do it. And you talk about... Um, in the final part of your editorial that seeking benefits is not the same as achieving them and there's just so much that's unknown. So I want to talk about this ecological aspect of it around the ecosystem and the conservation benefits that are potentially there in terms of restoring lost functions. I mean, just how beneficial do you think this could be in your experience and particularly maybe for the New Zealand examples that you've spoken about? I, I think you can make a very strong case that there is a conservation benefit to doing this. <clears throat> you talked before about gaps, gaps in ecosystems created by extinctions. Any gaps are a bad thing. Too many gaps and you risk a kind of a, an environmental collapse. For some species, uh, maybe have more 
important role than others. We talk about them being keystone species, that is, they, they affect other species below them, such as predators or um, things that disperse seed or, or browse on vegetation in certain ways. Or they might be ecosystem engineers, that is, they actually structurally change that kind of habitat. Once you take those out of the system, we know that that, that can create all sorts of changes within that ecosystem. We, we know that from local extirpation, so where you've lost something just from a region that may still be somewhere else in the world, but it's gone from an area. And we, we see the kind of ecosystem changes as a result of that. And there are examples out there, such as uh, when they eradicated wolves from Yellowstone National Park. There were some profound changes in, in elk populations that had an influence on vegetation, on stream flow, on erosion, all sorts of things. So you can make a case saying where these gaps exist, it would be really good if we could plug them, we could fill them, we could restore the functions that have been lost there. And what better way to do it than to try and bring back as close a version as we can of the thing that went extinct in the first place. Absolutely. And part of this debate um, that really comes into it and has created, I guess, the more heated moments in scientific discussion is the conservation area and the funding and resources that are allocated in this space. And we know that um, it's always underfunded because um, we should be doing more than we are. And certainly I can say that for Australia's experience. Um, But in terms of uh, this debate, often you'll see some conservation talk about how if we focus on de-extinction it may take funding from those other areas that actually seek to protect and conserve threatened species. I mean what about another point to this debate which is perhaps um, it shouldn't be uh, one thing or the other but should we be putting more funding or prioritising both? I, I think your point about us being woefully under-resourced for conservation globally is, is a really important one. Um, you know, we're not winning the biodiversity battles at the moment, so I can understand people being concerned that there might be a, a transfer of attention. We take our eye off the ball and we should kind of, to mix metaphors, stick to our knitting or something <laughs> like that. Um, the counter to that is saying, well, you know, new technology like this might attract funding which wouldn't ordinarily go to conservation. So you, you attract people who are interested by the idea of where this technology could go. They're not interested in funding another protected area. So it means your woolly mammoth doesn't come at the expense of a, of a park ranger somewhere. That is, it's, it's attracting new money. There's some other arguments around pushing this technology, and that is by putting money into the technology, you might be developing techniques that you could use actually to stop species going extinct in the first place. And I think this is one of the areas we're going to see a a lot of movement in. Or you might be uh, dealing with a species which is such high profile that you can get all sorts of other conservation gains on the back of that. We talk about umbrella species. They may be big, iconic species with large, um, you know, generic habitat requirements. And if you protect an area for one of those, then you're protecting it for all sorts of other things that live in that same space. So I would never say take the extinction off the table. You know, we're not interested in that at all. It's a distraction. We need to get back and do, do what we're doing, partly because doing what we're doing is not winning. So we need to think about all the tools, all the possibilities, and keep everything on the table. But it doesn't mean giving up on other things. People talk about de-extinction as creating a moral hazard. That is where one party takes a greater risk because the consequences of that risk are borne by someone else. 
And one of the moral hazards about de-extinction is that you undermine efforts to conserve species and stop them going extinct in the first place. If, if people get the impression that, oh, we'll just bring it back later, then maybe we, you know, we're, we actually might be uh, making the extinction crisis worse. I think we've got to counter that. I think we've got to keep de-extinction as an option and see where we can push that. And maybe where we push that is on very recently extinct species or things that are on the verge of extinction, maybe functionally extinct species that we can pull back in the, you know, from that brink. And certainly you've countered that narrative um, even just now and, and in this editorial it's very clear that um, that's what's gone really cannot be restored to what it was and I think that brings it home but also what you say about uh, capturing the public's imagination and really getting them behind and invested in um, the environment and conservation could be a benefit of de-extinction and perhaps these uh, particularly high profile cases that may eventuate into the future could create some momentum for the broader cons- conservation movement. Do you think that um, is, a, is possible? I think that's absolutely true. Um, the public, scientists, everyone, we, we tend to have this fascination for you know, large, hairy animals as opposed to other things. And we can see this kind of bias in even in research, even in conservation actions, we tend to do more things with mammals and birds than we do with, you know, reptiles or fish or, or invertebrates. But, you know, these are all critical parts of ecosystems. But if we can gain attention, gain funding, gain resources and gain some traction by focusing on some iconic species, we may be getting, getting it a protection for all those other species that sit underneath them. Well, I certainly could endorse that effect and um, and hopefully that we do see some developments in this area and in Australia as well as New Zealand. I'm really interested to hear and follow um, the New Zealand experience because we are so close and yet it seems that uh, cognitively we're quite far. So I hope we can keep bridging the gap. Well, I hope so too. I think I think we've got a lot to learn from each other. So, but um, I, I think this part of the world's doing extraordinary stuff. I think in Australasia, Oceania, I think we're leading leading the way. Partly because we have some serious problems we have to deal with, uh, but partly because we have a kind of a can-do attitude about. And also, such a unique set of species that um, is not present in other parts of the world. No, we lose them, we've lost them, that's for sure. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much, Phil, for joining us and, um, and sharing your insights here. It's just been absolutely valuable and uh, fascinating to hear from you. That's my pleasure. Thank you, Amy. That was Professor Phil Seddon. He's a zoologist uh, from the University of Otago in New Zealand and he was joining us uh, from Otago and if you want to look into this further um, we'll put up the link to the the article, Uh, it's called The Ecology of De-Extinction and it's within the journal Functional Ecology uh, 2017, it's volume 31 and it has uh, about six or so articles from a range of scientists including some from Australia that really tease out these issues in greater detail. So if you're interested in this field, I highly recommend uh, chasing that up. And you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. I'm Amy Mullins, the host of this show on 3RRR. You can listen in every Tuesday 
in Melbourne at 9am till 12pm. And if you are elsewhere, you can listen online through the Triple R website. Hope to see you again next time.